Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. A baby and a young mother. Every parent can understand coming to a moment like this and asking the question, what do we do with a baby? Especially if it's the first time out. I can still remember, I won't speak for Anita, but I will speak for me, bringing our firstborn home from the hospital. Austin arrived at home, and I remember thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this. I'm not sure where to turn except to Anita and her mom. Probably anyone who's been a parent can recognize that kind of feeling. What do we do with a baby? I discovered this week when I was browsing around on the Internet that I am not the only one to have had such questions and uncertainties and fears. I want to share with you three brief stories from three real-life mothers as they tell about experiences they and their families have had with a baby. The first mom is named Melissa, and she wrote the following. I had only been home from the hospital for a couple of days and was just finishing a shower when my husband screamed for me to come to the family room. I ran in and saw our daughter, Abigail, innocently lying on a towel on the floor. My husband jumped up and ran to the bathroom, and I heard him throwing up like he had a horrible flu. He walked out a few minutes later, went to our bedroom, and came out with a gas mask on. He said he had never seen anything like that. After that, he changed her diaper with his gas mask on. That poor child. Who in the world is this? Then a mom named Molly Meyer from San Jose, California writes, My baby was about two months old when I decided to join a new mommy group. I was a little nervous and wanted to make a good first impression. The mommies started to introduce themselves and their babies around the circle. When it came my turn, turn, I did a really good job of telling them my name, and then I started to tell them my baby's name, but I completely forgot it. <laughs> I forgot my new baby's name, the baby I had helped to name. In fact, I forgot it for so long that we had to move on and finish the names of the other mommies and babies in the group. And that was when I realized my baby's name was monogrammed on his blanket. This is just to remind you, Mommy, of who I am. What do we do with a baby? And finally, if you, if you have forgotten as a parent how big the gulf is between you and those who have not yet become parents, then listen to a young mother named Julie. My daughter Annie was about three weeks old when some friends from work stopped by. I was working on a total of about five hours of sleep for the week. I hadn't showered in days, and I wore the same stained leggings I'd been wearing since coming home from the hospital. The only reason I changed my T-shirts is that they got sopping wet with breast milk. 
One of my colleagues, a 20-something single woman with no kids, asked me in all seriousness, so what do you do now that you're not working? <laughs> That's when I saw the vast gulf between me, a parent, and non-parents. The non-parents just didn't understand. What do you do with a baby? Not just any baby. What do you do with the baby who is placed by Mary in a manger? Oswald Chambers says that God built his kingdom on the weakest link of all, a baby. So we've been considering this Advent season, considering Matthew chapter 1, considering because it gives the lineage, the heritage, the ancestors of that baby. Now, I realized that in turning to Matthew chapter 1, we were in dangerous waters. The late great preacher, Dr. Fred Craddock, said that he was told in seminary, don't preach on the lists. The Bible is full of lists of names. Don't preach on the lists. They're deadly. And then Craddock proceeded to preach a sermon on the list of names in Romans 16, a very memorable sermon. So maybe it was taking a jolt of courage from Dr. Craddock that drove us here, but we have come to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and we have been looking at the names, considering specifically the names of the women in the list of ancestors. So we have to start by asking, how did we get here? How did we get to the baby? And what will the baby teach us? Well, we began some weeks ago with a staff and a signet seal. And Tamar, this was Tamar's gift to us. Tamar's gift that said, God will heal your shame and forgive your guilt. So does Jesus in 23 and me change my destiny? Tamar says he wants you to have a shame-free, guilt-free, forever future. And then we came to the story of Rahab and the red cord, the scarlet cord hanging from the window. And with Rahab, we discovered that God will use anybody, and I mean anybody, to further his purpose and cause of love in the world. And then we went to Ruth, the basket, the sheaves of, of wheat. And we discovered from Ruth that those who were formerly excluded and kept out have been drawn in and now belong to the people of God. So your destiny, according to Ruth, no matter who you are, no matter your origin or your past, you're part of the people of God. And then last week, we came to the tarnished crown. That woman, remember? Bathsheba. And we learned from the tarnished crown that God has a place for even dysfunctional families. That every one of us has the privilege of playing a place in the part of God and that his destiny for us, his plan, his desire for us is to live in healthy, functional families. And now we come to the baby, the baby in the manger. What will the baby teach us? What does the baby offer us? Well, I want to read the passage this morning, Matthew chapter 1, and we're actually going to read the entire list. We haven't done it to this point, but we will today. And we do it for this reason. The list is going somewhere. It has a destination. 
That's underlined by the words of the preeminent British New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who writes this about this list in Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament. Wright writes, The average modern person who thinks, maybe I'll read the New Testament, is puzzled to find on the very first page a long list of names that he or she has never heard of. But it is important not to think that this is a waste of time. For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. Any first-century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling. Like a great procession coming down a city street, we watch the figures at the front and the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the position of greatest honor, the one who comes right at the end. And so the list is a pedigree of the one who comes at the end. It is saying this person's pedigree is sound and pure. We're spending time with this list because of one simple conviction. And that conviction is this. Jesus' pedigree can change your destiny. Jesus' pedigree can change your destiny. So read the list with me. Matthew chapter 1 begins... This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud. Abiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Matthan. Matthan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. That's his pedigree. And it changes your destiny. Just a few minutes ago, we had the privilege of watching a video story of Albert Al Denninger. As you watch the story, as you listen to him tell it, you no doubt notice that he began by saying, I always felt special. 
I knew I was adopted, and my mother told me, you're chosen. You're chosen. I wanted you. You are special. He said, I grew up feeling special, so he didn't grow up with a particular need or desire to find out about birth parents. But if you were listening carefully, you then noticed something else he said. He said, I did, however, notice that there weren't people that looked like me. I wanted to see someone that looked like me. We all have that yearning within us, that yearning to belong, to be a part of a family, to know that this is my people, that this is my tribe, that we belong together. We look like each other. We have that deep yearning and that deep need. And that is the need to which Al was speaking in the video. And so I guess the question becomes, for those of us 2,000 years after the event of Bethlehem, the question becomes, is there anyone there that looks like me? Is there anyone there that looks like me that, that would then say to me, I'm part of this, I belong, these are my people, this is my family. Is there anyone that looks like me? Now, you may have wondered about that as we went through the different names in this genealogy. In fact, some people have referred to these as the bad girls of the Bible. <laughs> and not without cause. But then we come to this one to Mary, to the baby. The others, we can understand why their, their, their stories might go by one-word titles, indecent, illegal, immoral, illicit. But then we come to this one, and the one-word title that emerges from the story is the word incredible. Incredible. And so somebody asks, why is the word for this story the word incredible? Well, maybe the reason the word is the word incredible is because of who Mary was. Mary, to the best of our knowledge and ability to ascertain from the world of her day and time, was probably a teenager, maybe a mid-teenager, a very young person. Now, we all know that if you need a job done, a very important job done, if you need a job done that's going to change the world, that's going to transform history, that's going to make life better for humankind, that is going to do grand and dramatic things, everyone knows if you want that kind of job done, you need wisdom and experience. You need the calloused hands of age, not the tender, milky hands of inexperience and youth. But the text says, the angel came to a maiden, young. And that's incredible. Maybe that's why the story is incredible. After all, we know big jobs, big things, wise people, long experience. That was underlined. Underlined a 
year or so ago, August of 2017, NASA put out a wanted ad, a job that they had created, planetary protection operative. Planetary protection operative. What in the world is that? Well, this role would be a person who would step into the role and who would head the process of making sure that explorations into outer space were very careful with outer space, protected outer space from even microscopic human footprints, but also protected our planet when outer space came back to our planet. This was a person who was going to care for all of those realities. And they put out a wanted ad. The media immediately picked up on it because of the unique nature of the job. And it was divulged and promulgated everywhere. Different papers, different websites. Here is the new job. Starting salary somewhere between $124,000 and $187,000 a year. Media started to call it the coolest job ever. Oh, but there were stringent requirements. Make no mistake about it. This person needed to be studied and versed and educated in many different sciences, physics and biology and chemistry, engineering, needed to have a very stringent preparation. Experience, age. I don't know how many applicants sent their material in for the job, but I do know this. One application for the job came from a nine-year-old named Jack Davis, printed by hand. Jack Davis wrote in asking for the job, and here is what he wrote. I may be nine, but I think I would be a fit for the job. One of the reasons why is that my sister says I'm an alien. <laughs> also, I've seen almost all the space movies and alien movies that I can see. He then went on to detail his plans to watch Men in Black, why that would help him with the job. And then he concluded his note by saying this, I'm young so I can learn to think like an alien. His application for the job. I know you will be both surprised and disappointed that he did not get the job. It's a bit surprising. But what he did get is he got a letter back from NASA's director of planetary science, a gentleman named Jim Green. Jim Green wrote this to Jack Davis, We are always looking for bright future scientists and engineers to help us. So I hope you will study hard and do well in school. We hope to see you here at NASA one of these days. Now, if I were to summarize what Green's letter said to Jack, I would summarize it this way. He is saying to Jack, grow up. Stay in school, do extremely well, take a demanding course of science in college and in graduate school, graduate at the top of your class, and when you have had that education and that preparation and that experience, then bring us your resume and we'll give you due consideration. And that's appropriate because we know that jobs like that Go to those who have preparation, information, experience, age. And the text says, the angel 
delivering the message that God is about to save the planet, came to a maiden, teenager. I don't know. I don't know what word you would use for that. The word I would use is incredible. So maybe that's the answer. Why is the word used to describe this story? Or maybe there's a better answer. Maybe the answer is not just that he used a young maiden as the baby's mother, but maybe the answer is that the baby's father, well, it wasn't Joseph. Let me read you the words of New Testament scholar Janine Brown as she writes about this. Dr. Brown says, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is the offspring of Mary, but he does not tie Jesus biologically to Joseph. In the Greek text, a feminine singular relative pronoun, heis, is used to specify that Mary, not Joseph and Mary, beget Jesus. This point is important because it raises a genealogical conundrum. Matthew has just traced Jesus' Jewish and Davidic ancestry through Joseph's line, yet he problematizes that connection by indicating that Jesus comes from Mary and her line and not Joseph. Matthew will solve this conundrum in Jesus' birth story by accenting Joseph's choice to adopt Jesus as his own son. So, Matthew, what are you saying? Are you saying that Mary is the baby's mother and that God is the baby's father? I've heard some inventive stories in my day. That's a pretty remarkable one. The truth is, Questions about the parentage of Jesus will haunt him throughout his life. Time and again, his opponents, his foes, will raise questions about it, will point accusing fingers at him, will wrap their robes of self-righteousness about themselves and say, well, at least we weren't born of porneia, immorality. In other words, we don't know who your father is. Wasn't Joseph. In fact, New Testament scholar Michael Green tells us that there was a rumor spread by the religious leaders of the day that Jesus was parented by Mary and a Roman soldier illegitimately. These questions will haunt him throughout his life. And yet his answer to them is simple. God is my Father. God. That's incredible. Because if what you're saying is true, then that means that your mother gave birth as a virgin. Incredible. The Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias writes of an exchange, a story he had involving the talk show host Larry King. Larry King had said something, and Zacharias wanted to get permission to use it. So here's what Zacharias writes. 
I have often referenced the quote by the talk show host Larry King in his response to this particular question. This was the question asked of King. If you could select any one person across all of history to interview, who would it be? Mr. King's answer was that he would like to interview Jesus Christ. When the questioner followed that up with, and what would you like to ask him? King replied, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin-born. The answer to that question would define history for me. So when through a mutual acquaintance, Zacharias told the acquaintance to ask King if he could use the story in his book. King gave permission, and then he said, and tell him I was not being facetious. It would define history for me. I would suggest for me, maybe for you, it does define history. What a claim. Virgin birth? I don't know what you would entitle that story, but I would give it the title Incredible. So maybe that's why that's the name of the story. Maybe because God is doing a grand, dramatic, world-changing work through a teenager. Or maybe it's because that teenager gives birth to a child whose father is God. Incredible. But as incredible as those realities are, they are not the most incredible part of the story. No, there's something different. Something underlined by the American writer Madeline Lingle, who said, The virgin birth pales in insignificance with the concept that the power of the universe took on my flesh. You want to talk incredible. God limiting himself to human flesh? Do you know what I think the most incredible part of the story is? I think, I, I think it's like this. The video story that we saw, Al Deniger's story. You remember Al saying, I, I felt special. My mother said, you're adopted, you're special, I wanted you. But there was always this, sense that I didn't have anyone that looked like me. And the quest began. You remember in the story, it came to the point where he was going to meet the sisters for the first time. And one of his sisters said to him, okay, but we're meeting at a neutral place. We'll meet you at a bed and breakfast in Johnson, Vermont. Do you remember what Al said as he described that moment? That moment when the car pulled up and he looked at the woman getting out and he said with emphasis, she looks like 
me. The story is that 2,000 years ago, a baby was born to a teenage mother with a father named God, and that that baby had a pedigree that said, I am royalty. Story says that that baby would grow up and would speak of God as Father with an intimacy that never before had human beings known. It said that that baby would live and die and rise. The story says that that baby will one day rule forever and ever. Hallelujah. It says that before that baby, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's what the story says about that baby. Incredible. But as incredible as all of that is, it is not as incredible as this. If you were to go to that stable, were to go in to that manger scene, and were to look in the dancing firelight at the face of that baby, you would say something absolutely incredible because you would look and you would say, He looks just like me. Do you know why He looks that way? Because He is like you just like you, but perfect. And when you see that the baby looks like you, you suddenly realize, this is my family. I belong. And that is incredible. God of grace, we are quite simply stunned by the story, a story in which we place our firm and full faith. We are so deeply grateful for every name on that list, but beyond it all, we thank you for a baby that looks just like us. In the name of Jesus, amen.